Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the Prime Minister asks for patience as blockades continue across the country. Do we want to become a country of irreconcilable differences? Where people talk but refuse to listen? Where politicians are ordering police to arrest people? A country where people think they can tamper with rail lines and endanger lives? This is simply unacceptable. Andrew Scheer is excluded from a leaders meeting to discuss the blockades. If he had something substantial to say, if he was uh, proposing measures that he thought he needed opposition to support, uh, or if he was going to brief us on a situation or, or, or on a way forward, I'm always willing to sit down and, and listen to, to, you know, we've had briefings before on issues uh, that, uh, that are constructive, but if it's just to sit around the table and I'll agree on a message on this, so it's, it's no surprise that I wasn't invited. And the federal government is bringing in changes to the stress test rate for insured mortgages. I think what's important for us to, to ensure is that we continue to protect people's most important investment. This will ensure that people uh, only take on mortgages that are appropriate for their situation. It's Wednesday, February 19th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. So the Prime Minister has asked for patience. Do you think Canadians are going to be patient about the blockades and protests across the country? I think they will be for now. Um, you know, I think that we haven't quite yet seen uh, impact in people's daily lives the way we may do if it, if it keeps going on. I mean... Some of the things they're worried about shortages, if, if this uh, blockade continues, include propane for heating, um, chlorine for water treatment, uh, de-icing fuel for aircraft. You know, another week or two of this, we could be seeing flights ground up, we could be seeing boil water advisories in, in big cities. We could be seeing people without uh, home heating. So I don't think we're at that stage yet. And I do, I do think that people realise the potential disastrous consequences of wading into um, a Mohawk blockade with uh, with cops or, or even the army. You know, that, that we, we've seen Oka, we've seen Ipperwash, we've seen these cases before, and it potentially can get ugly. So I think for now, people are frustrated. I think they would like to see more from the Prime Minister in, in him condemning the idea that a tiny minority of people are holding the vast majority economically hostage, but I don't think they're going to demand action right now. What else could be expected from the Prime Minister at this point? And I, I know some people have pointed out, for example, the, that uh, that there's there have been talks going on, there were chats on the weekend, that sort of thing, but uh, it, what what bargaining position does the government have here, ultimately? Well, I think there are a bunch of things that the government could be doing that they're not doing. I mean, I just said one of them. You could be uh, talking about uh, condemning the, the, the actions that are being taken. He's not doing that. I think he could be promoting the fact that, that uh, the the wet suet and people in, in uh, British Columbia are on side with this development. You know, democratically elected governments have voted have uh, said they're in favor of it on this reserve this thing this project has been proposed for six years there have been 15 elections on the reserve and uh, on the uh, among the five bands who said yes 
and every one of them has said uh, yes to this project. So I think that, that the government could be pointing out the fact that the people who are seeing their wet suit and uh, supporters are actually in opposition to the, the ambitions of the people on the ground. Uh, the other thing I think is that this government proposed a rights recognition framework two years ago. And the whole idea was that it would deal with the issues of indigenous land and indigenous title that I think are at the heart of this dispute. You know, it's, it's almost incidental that this is about a pipeline. I don't don't think this particular case is a, particularly about climate change or even the environment. I mean, this is not an oil pipeline. There are there are bans on this on the route of this pipeline who said no to Northern Gateway because it was a, a bitumen oil pipeline. This is gas. If the, if the pipeline breaks and the, the gas dissipates, so I think it's a different case. The government said it was going to try and deal with the big issues of reconciliation, which are essentially granting title to First Nations who have probably been involved in court cases for, for many, many years trying to get ownership of their land, and also to bring them out from under, under the Indian Act uh, so that they can become self-governing and, and be in charge of their own destinies. These are things that they, this government basically allied itself to. I mean, this was a, a central plank in Justin Trudeau's election campaign in 2015, and nothing has happened on it. Justin Trudeau said yesterday that the disruptions are a critical moment for our country and our future. Uh, how do you see this playing out ultimately? Uh, what is there a path towards resolution? What does it look like? Do you think? I think there is a path to resolution. I think it has to be because the alternative is too unthinkable. Um, you know, I saw a poll last year which suggested three quarters of Indigenous youth are optimistic about reconciliation. First Nations have had a lot of success, or successes in court in recent years, and they've seen things changing. And, that, and they're now seeing a government which is making all the right noises but not actually following through on it. But, but were they to follow through on it, then there is, I think, uh, a desire, a reciprocal desire to, for mutual accommodation, to move forward together, to, to create space in Confederation for self-governing First Nations who pay their own way. You know, I mean, the, 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 the bands that have signed up for self-government and for uh, for new deals that come out from under the Indian Act, they pay tax. So this, I think, is the direction that most people want to head in. The flip side of that, the, the, the unthinkable side, is that this blows up and suddenly is replicated in 10, 20 other places in Canada. There was a study done by uh, Oxford University academics who looked into civil unrest around the world, and they found that motivation was not a key factor. Generally, the evidence suggested that feasibility was the main issue. That is, if it's feasible to launch a, a revolution or civil unrest, then that's that's why it happened. Canada's indigenous population, it's in easily feasible to see that thing spreading. You know, we've got a, a very young population, almost half of the population is under 30. You've got very spread out transportation routes that are impossible to defend. And you've got a, a, a security system that is lacks capacity and it lacks leaders who, would, who want to engage in conflict. So all those factors mean that 
the idea that uh, law enforcement moves into this Mohawk camp and dis- disbands it, and then we see them uh, the protests popping up across the country and sabotage on railway lines, I think that that is so unthinkable that a resolution is possible. Wanted to get your reaction to how Andrew Scheer, the conservative leader, is handling this and how the prime minister has responded to that. Scheer has been calling on the government to end the protests, to use the police to do so. Uh, And the prime minister didn't invite him to a meeting of other party leaders. Uh, The NDP leader was there. The uh, Green Party leader in the House, Elizabeth May, was there. But Andrew Scheer was not. Uh, because the Prime Minister didn't agree with Andrew Scheer's comments on that. What do you what do you make of the politics around this issue right now? Well, I think Scheer's probably overplayed his hand a little bit. I, mean, I don't think that advocating the use of force at this point is where most people are. I mean, there clearly will, will be some Conservative supporters who are, but I think that he's gone beyond what most people think should happen. I think that, they, that he's expressing the frustration that many Canadians feel, and I think that some of the points he was making, like saying, you know, he's in uh, in support of the wet sewer and population who are who have democratically voted in favour of this project. I think that that he was on firm ground there, but I think he went beyond where most people are when he started talking about uh, the use of force, because I do think that uh, that the downside of that is so dramatic. As for Trudeau. Why not invite him? Because I don't think he would have come anyway. But um, but it did. It, it you know this is Trudeau's generally talked about taking the high road. I don't think he took the high road, and um, you know it, it it made it an even more bitter question period than it might have been. All right, let's talk about briefly the federal government bringing in changes to the stress test for insured mortgages. And I I find this interesting because it feels like the government is always tinkering with the rules around mortgages in part to inspire people to buy homes, but at the same time to not allow them to get into too much debt uh, and particularly risky amounts of debt, which is a a concern that has been expressed by the Bank of Canada governor, chief economists of the major banks and others. Right. Well, this was a hot potato in the the election because um, everybody was trying to Went over the, um, the the young voters, the millennial voters, who have been priced out of the housing market. Um, you know, Andrew Shear had proposed uh, extending the amortisation period to thirty years from twenty five. Uh, the the Liberals came up with their own plan, where they would first time home buyers plan, where you could get up to ten percent of your of your uh, house price interest free. The downside being that you. You have to give ten percent back when you sold the house, which um, we've seen with the low ticket rates subsequent to that. That it wasn't a very popular policy because it didn't, it's not a very good deal for home buyers, to be honest. So they all wanted to tinker with the stress test, but but the problem for the government was that it is working. Um, you know, the, the the debt as a percentage of disposable income level in Canada remains high, but mortgage. Delinquency rates are extremely low. They're only about 0.18%. So, you know, the, 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 the regulators did not want the government to just ditch the stress test for political reasons. Um, so they, they're giving the appearance of taking action, but they're not really getting to the core of getting away with the stress test. And that's a good thing, because the stress test, you know, at the risk of stating the obvious, the reason that home ownership 
is over the reach of many Canadians is that prices are too high. The stress test keeps those prices lower than they would have been, and fixing it in inverted commas could inflate them again. All right, John, great to have your comments on all of this. Thank you very much for joining us today. That's great. Thank you, Mark. That's John Iveson of the National Post. Do we want to become a country of irreconcilable differences? Where people talk but refuse to listen? Where politicians are ordering police to arrest people? A country where people think they can tamper with rail lines and endanger lives? This is simply unacceptable. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. At globalnews.ca, Tasha Carradine argues the blockades have put Justin Trudeau at the center of a perfect storm. Carradine writes, Justin Trudeau is afraid of the repercussions at the ballot box, on social media, and at whatever town hall he holds next. The standoff is the marriage of the two constituencies he courted more than any other in the 2015 election, Indigenous people, and the environmental movement. They have become a force that threatens to derail not only Canada's economy, but also, quite possibly, his government. In an editorial, the Toronto Star argues that while Justin Trudeau is right to take the path of patience, time is running out. The Star writes, Trudeau is right to try and cool down the situation rather than turn up the heat. He's right to call for dialogue and go the extra mile to find a long-term solution, as difficult as that may be. But the clock is ticking loudly on this crisis, and the government's patience must not go unrewarded. The shutdown of vital rail lines is causing real damage to the nation's economy. Those behind the protests must recognize that there are limits, and they should not expect to be allowed to continue indefinitely. In the Globe and Mail, Andrew Coyne argues that while the blockades are illegal, they should not be met with force. Coyne writes, Canada's way of life will not be sustained by force. It depends crucially upon the willingness of the Indigenous peoples to cooperate with the wider population. And nothing could be better calculated to turn moderate opinion against the project than the indiscriminate use of force against the blockades. Patience and solicitude are what is required, attending the most pressing practical needs of First Nations while slowly isolating the radicals. The last thing we need are martyrs. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. Environmental groups and three of the four opposition parties will be holding a news conference in Ottawa. And as CPAC's Martin Stringer reports, the issue, once again, is resource development and the environment. Mark, at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time in the National Press Theatre, representatives from the Bloc Québécois, the NDP and the Green Party will be joined by some of the country's most prominent environmental groups and legal activists to call on the federal government to stop borrowing any more money faced with the rise costs of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Last week, the government admitted that the cost of building the pipeline or expanding it has already grown from the first estimate of about $7.4 billion to at least $12.6 billion. But some critics, economists and environmental groups have estimated that by the time the entire project is finished, it could well cost around $20 billion, although that is not proven. These groups will be calling on the government today to stop borrowing to pay for the pipeline. However, last week, Finance Minister Bill Morneau made it absolutely clear that the government will continue on, and he says that the investments will be paid off by revenues generated and by the eventual sale of the pipeline to the private sector. 
Now, once again, it just highlights, though, the government's fighting continual battles in balancing resource development and environmental concerns now on three fronts. The Trans Mountain Pipeline, whether or not to approve a new multi-billion dollar oil sands mine, the tech mine in northern Alberta, and of course, the countrywide protests that are going on now over building the Coastal Gas Link natural gas pipeline in northern BC. Thanks, Martin. Also today, the Prime Minister will attend the Liberal Caucus meeting and question period, and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will speak with the media after the NDP's weekly caucus meeting. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, February 19th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.